once your basic needs are met, happiness comes not from a higher salary or more perks at the office, but from relationships with others, family, friends, experiences. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the help of a happier life, a more knowledgeable life, a self-improved life. Yeah, I agree with that. That's what we do. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. And today, today, speaking of self-improvement, how important do you think finding your dream job, quote unquote, is important to discussing self-improvement. Absolutely. We spend so much of our time at work, right? So the idea of finding something that is a fit for you, where you can flourish, that is an expression of your talents, community, absolutely essential when we're talking about the good life. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in, in fact, you know, we tried our best to come up with a philosophical approach to career change, to finding a career, how to be positive about it. A lot of our listeners are obviously college students or grad students or other people who may be in industries that want to make a switch to a new industry and having a good positive approach to that, I think is vitally important. And our guest today is Mac Pritchard of Find Your Dream Job podcast, which is an excellent podcast. Even before he came onto our show, I have been recommending this podcast to people. Some very terrific topics. I met Mac at Podcast Movement Conference in Las Vegas. We hit it off. He's just, he's a great human being. He's got a really big audience and he's putting all of his time and effort into helping people find their dream jobs. There are so many pieces of great information here. And it was reminding me, so this was the 90s. You know, I'm a bookworm, but I picked up a book. I was staying with my cousin and she had a book on interview questions and how to answer them. I am telling you, Rudy, that is probably the best book that I read. But of course, it's from the 90s. So everything that I know from that is not relevant to today. So Matt gives us all of this information of how to put yourself out there, how to search, how to understand what it is that you want, and also how to meet the goals of the employer or the manager so that you are part of a process where you are making this company greater. You're part of that. Yeah. We also talked about like how important it is to read biographies. We talked about how important it is to understand what it is that you're looking for, like in terms of time commitment, money commitment, your talents. I loved this. It's so crucial because so much of our time is spent at work. I agree. We also got a little bit deeper in discussions about just some of the generational differences between baby boomers and Gen Xers and, and Gen Z and millennials and our approaches to work and all of the different struggles that each generation is facing. This is not just a how to find a job podcast. We actually talk about the process of thinking about what you want out of your life. I mean, really, that's what I mean, at the end of the day, our podcast good as in the details is trying to help people live a better life. And whether you like it or not, your job is a huge portion of that. So I do think that thinking about your job and taking a philosophical approach to what you want out of life is vitally important. Yeah. And you're going to want a pen and paper for this one because Rudy, you were even taking notes, right? Of like advice that you could give to other people. This is really a valuable episode. I was. Yeah. And you know, I, I've often worked in recruiting in my law firm and I've, I, and I teach, you know, law students and I constantly talk about finding a job. It is something that's very important. So we hope you enjoy this episode with Mac Pritchard of Find Your Dream Job. 
many job seekers, and I was certainly in this camp for many years, struggle with job search skills. We Many of us just don't have formal training in how to do it. As a result, we make our searches longer and harder than it has to be. And to help people get a great job quicker and easier, I host this career advice show. And we've been doing it now for almost eight years. Every week I talk to a different career expert about the nuts and bolts of job search and we get granular about it, but that's what our listeners come for. And there's nothing incongruous with saying dream and job together. Why not? Because some people look at work or even it's a Monday. Some people look at, oh, it's Monday. So we're talking about dream and job in the same sentence. How does that fit together? Gwen jumped ahead to my question. One of them was, find your dream job. <laughs> so, Mac, what we're really asking is, is there such a thing? And what I say is, well, perhaps if you don't define dream as perfect, right? Because, like, I don't know. What, do you, what are your thoughts on our, on our questions there? No job is perfect. There are always going to be things that you don't like about a position. But here's the good news. If you're clear about what you want and what you offer, you will find work that is satisfying and rewarding and brings meaning to your life. But your job isn't the end goal in itself. It's getting clear about what you want to do with your life that matters. And once you understand that, then you can find work that can help you achieve your goals and, and your dreams. And so I think that's the key thing. And many people that I meet, candidates, they struggle with their goals. And again, I certainly had this challenge myself earlier in my career. They're not sure about what they want. Rather than invest the time in getting that clarity, both about what they want in life and in their careers, when they're looking for work, they just apply and they use the job search process as a way to try to figure that out. And that's a very inefficient, often painful way to do it. The better way is before you send out that first application, get clarity about what you want in your career and what you want in your next job. And when you do that, you'll have a much more satisfying career and and a better life. Let's take that back even a couple of more steps, Mac, because a decent amount of our audience happens to be students, whether they're whether they're yeah. undergrad, whether they're grad students. Gwen's a professor. I'm a professor. So let's let's take that back a couple of steps. At what point do we, and I have very young children, Gwen has a very young child. At what point do we start telling our children, what's your life goals? You need to start planning this now and what's important to you. Like, is it, is it, is it grade school? Is it high school? Like, how young should we be talking to people about this? Well, I think you should be talking to people early in life about their goals. You should also make it clear that you don't have to come up with a lifelong plan at the age of 15, 18, 22. And I think for students in particular, it's important to remember you don't have to have the perfect job after graduation. You just have to know what interests you and what you want to explore. And those first three, five, seven years after college are about exploring different interests, trying on different roles and jobs, and getting clarity about what you want to do in your career. I think the other thing that is important to remember, not only if you're a young person or a recent graduate, but for people mid-career as well, we're all likely going to have three, five, seven different careers in the course of 40 years in the workplace. And we don't have to figure that plan out at age 18 or 22. But what we do have to do is recognize that these changes will happen. And to navigate them successfully, we've got to set and revisit and measure our progress in achieving goals. 
And we also have to invest in the skills going to help us professionally get the jobs we want that are going to help us satisfy those professional goals. So thinking about careers and goals, what what are some things that one needs to consider at whatever age? I mean, how important should quote unquote happiness be as compared to finance? What about time commitment? For example, we've talked about this a number of times on this about how I became a lawyer. The only way I became a lawyer was I was only allowed to leave my parents' house. Like I literally wasn't allowed to move out at 18 unless I guaranteed that I was going to become a lawyer. At that point, my parents said, okay, we'll help you with college. You're allowed to leave. I come from a traditional Middle Eastern household. Most people think that that sounds crazy, but that's how things are. You're not allowed to leave unless you're married. Uh, Yep. Not kidding. But like, Okay, so the decision was made for me. I'm going to become a lawyer. That was my path. And obviously, I do a lot of other things on the side. And those things provide happiness to me. But the law provides a very, you know, healthy compensation. And and Gwen and some other guests have, have joked about in the past about how, oh, we're philosophy majors or, oh, nobody told us what to do. And now we're trying to figure out how to make how to make money. And it's an on running joke on the show. But it's a serious one. Like, seriously, how important should financial compensation be when you're when you're deciding to make your goals and choose your career it is important you have to pay attention to it and you need to know what kind of life you want do you want to buy a house where do you want to live what is it going to take financially to support the life that you are designing for yourself once you know what those numbers are you need to also look at the occupations that interest you and see if those jobs are going to provide the income that you want. I'm sure you're both familiar with this research out there that shows that after a certain point, you don't need more money. The more money you earn doesn't make you happier. And I, I see different figures out there, but I, I believe it's about $75,000. Once your basic needs are met, Happiness comes not from a higher salary or more perks at the office, but from relationships with others, family, friends, experiences. Knowing the life that you want, the income that it's going to take to make that happen, I think is where you need to start. Because happiness comes from within. I think it's largely a result of the experiences that we have and the goals that we set for ourselves and our success in achieving them. I don't think it's about our income after a certain point. Yeah, I we believe me, we explore that topic a lot, mm-hmm. Mac, on the show where we actually talk about creativity is actually the root of happiness, creating creating something, being creative, having a creative mindset, putting something out there new in the world that's never been there. That's where true happiness kind of comes from. And obviously that, you know, you can you can have creativity by being really innovative and doing a child's birthday party or, or, you know, writing poems, whatever, whatever that is. Like we talk about happiness a lot. We definitely talk a lot about that on this show. And I have been following the studies about what's the minimum amount that it's going to need to be happy. But the reality is with inflation, I'm going to tell you right now that $75,000 has got to be like a hundred thousand dollars. Now it's just things are becoming more expensive. So when somebody is choosing a career, my guess is Compensation can't be the number one goal, but you do want to go into an area, right, that has some growth potential because let's be honest, things are just going to continue to be expensive. One of the things that I'm worried about, and we've talked about it on this show, and I talk about it incessantly, and this is going to affect my career, is AI. How important in your methodical planning of your career how worried should you be about AI taking over your job? Does, have you had those discussions on your show or am I just being my normal sci-fi paranoid person? I'm curious about your thoughts. 
It's a great question to raise, and it's one that a lot of people are talking about now. And I do see people falling into two camps. There are those who worry that AI will take away their job or make it go away altogether. And there are others who are asking, huh, interesting new tool. How can I use this to automate routine mundane tasks that I don't want to do that make my job less than perfect or use it to provide new services to clients or customers? I think it's the the second group that's got it right. And I also think it's an old story. Wherever we are in our, our lives, we can all remember technological change that was disruptive and it, it did eliminate jobs, but people found new jobs and learned new skills. And this has been going on for forever. You can't ignore it. You got to prepare for it. It does offer opportunities, artificial intelligence. And I think the people who are going to have the most success in the future are the ones who think about those opportunities or think about what they would rather do instead if their job is threatened by AI. Again, my experience is most people don't want to do one job for 40 years, Rudy and Gwendolyn. They've got multiple interests and they want to explore those. What they get stuck with is they're not sure how to act on those interests. In my case, when I came out of out of college at the University of Iowa a long, long time ago, I wanted to do three things. I wanted to work on congressional campaigns. I wanted to get paid to write. And I wanted to do human rights activism in Latin America. And by the time my 20s were over, I'd done all three of those things and, and, and eventually built a career in communications, in politics and government and nonprofits. I moved among different sectors, eventually started my own public relations company. And now I run a, a regional job board. I don't think my story is atypical. You may not start your own company, but most of us who are listening to the show, we have multiple interests and we would like to have different jobs over the course of 40 years in the workplace where people get stuck. The, many of the job seekers I talk to, is they don't know how to act on that. It sounds simple. It's not. It takes ex The devil is always in the detail and the execution. But if you know what you want, where you want to go and what you offer, you'll be able to have a satisfying career and you'll be able also to manage the challenges that disruptive new technologies like artificial intelligence bring to the workplace and to our lives. Yeah, I think one of the interesting realities because of the advance of technology is that whatever skill you're learning right now is going to be obsolete in 10 years, which means that what we have to focus on is really what are your goals? How do you flourish? What are you interested in? And I want to give a shout out as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about this and you know careers. I want to give a shout out to the small jobs that you do when you're young, before you hit the career, because there is a bit of antagonism. I'm not going to say it's completely unjustified about working for a big capitalist structure and thinking, well, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. But there is so much that you gain from, let's just say, if you're a barista, you work at McDonald's, I worked in a beauty supply shop, that this recognition that that is prepping you for a career, you can show up and you have the opportunity to be the best part of somebody's day. And also when you walk into a shop or you're getting a coffee, you're walking into somebody else's workspace, you have an opportunity to be a good part of their day. And I think that that recognition is important because it doesn't seem like a, it's not like writing code. You know, it's not like the same thing of other skill sets, but this ability to show up to work and be your best self and recognize that you can have an impact in somebody else's day and you can flourish as a person is a really great skill set for all of the things that are going to be brought to you in the career life that are unforeseen because we don't know what the technology is going to be in the next 10 or 20 years. 
I agree. I say this to everybody, and, I, and Mac, I, I want your, I really want your thoughts on this. I tell everybody that I wouldn't be successful with clients as a lawyer or in general if I didn't work at McDonald's. The, the training and customer relations and the, and the various types of customers that you have, the various types of happiness, the various types of bad days that you're dealing with is some of the greatest training on earth. Sorry, Mac, just wanted to throw that in there. I love the point you're both making and, and two stories come to mind. One is my communications company. I was working with a client at a large foundation, actually one of the top five in the country, and we were getting ready to hire someone to work on her account. And I asked, what job hiring tips do you have for me in looking for a communication officer to work with you? And she said, find somebody who's worked in the service industry, particularly uh, as a server, because if she or he has had to work, serve tables, they know how to work well under pressure, handle multiple deadlines. They're paying attention to the needs of the people in the kitchen and in the dining room. And I'll also say, Gwendolyn, in my career in communications, one of my specialties was crisis communications. When I was working for state agencies and things went dreadfully wrong, I was usually the guy they brought in to talk to the media. And I credit a lot of my success to a job I had several summers when I was in college working at a restaurant where I ran what was called the wheel. And every night we served about 600 dinners. The orders would come in, the tickets would go on this wheel. And my job was to assign the work and then collect the food, put it on the plate. And I was doing this in a narrow passageway where the temperature was about 100 degrees. You were always in danger of bumping into hot things. And on the other side were all these waiters, servers rather, who wanted their order now because they didn't want their tip to be endangered. We would do that every night for weeks on end. And high pressure situation, great preparation for crisis communications and politics too. I read recently that when people are looking for, or people are looking to hire somebody, that the idea of pitching yourself as a problem solver is not nearly as effective as if you can cite a problem, that you can actually find it, not just the problem solver, but you're the one who is able to spot it in order to work with it. And I thought that was so fascinating because there's just such a there's such a shift in what are the needs of companies and it's happening so quickly. And also the attitude of the new generation, which I'm not going to put a claim good or bad. It's simply different. Like I saw somebody post something of when the employer wants three recommendations, you ask for three recommendations of three happy employees. <laughs> and so there's this power dynamic <laughs> that has changed. And I don't know if it's totally unreasonable, but you know, the old days of just getting a resume together and then dropping them off at different locations is not the thing. Now there's Google searches. So how much aware should somebody be aware of their online profile when it comes to seeking out a job and then maybe even keeping a job? Your online profile is, is vital. Every recruiter, every hiring manager is going to do an online search of you if you're a candidate. So what are they going to see? And how do you want to present yourself? You need to think about that and make sure that your online footprint supports how you want to uh, be seen. It's vital. And I also want to go back to a point you made a moment ago, Gwendolyn, about problem solving. This is one of the secrets of successful job seekers. They don't simply apply to positions and depend on their qualifications and their skills to make the case. They actually see themselves as not only as problem solvers, but they put in the time before an interview, before sending in applications to understand what the problems are that that employer has. They talk about those problems in the interview. One of the best 
questions you can ask in a job interview is obviously not at the start, but at, at some point toward the end of the uh, conversation, when it's your turn to ask questions, is to say to the hiring manager, if I'm fortunate enough to get this job and you and I are sitting down in a year's time to do my annual review, what are the three things you'll ask me, you, you'll want me to tell you I've done for you? When you ask that question, there's always a pause. The manager always sits back in her chair, he or she, and then she'll tell you about something, some challenge, some problem that isn't in the job posting, wasn't in the interview questions. So it's knowledge you have that your competitors don't have unless they ask this question. And you have an opportunity as that manager talks to tell her about your own experience solving similar problems and give her your ideas about how you would tackle this challenge. And two things happen when you do that. One is uh, it shows that you are indeed a problem solver and something that your competitors are likely telling the interviewer, but you're showing her. The other thing is you and she are now going to have a conversation about how to fix that problem. So she's starting to treat you like a, like a peer, like a partner. It's, a, it's an amazing dynamic. And it goes back to your point about the importance of understanding problems when you're looking for work, because that's what employers want. People who are going to make their lives easier and let them get sleep at night. <laughs> I actually wrote that down. I get that question asked a lot. Like, hey, at the end, when they're asking me what questions I have, I usually come up with nothing because I'm too nervous. Now I have something to tell them. This episode of Good is in the Details is brought to you by AvonmoreInc.com. If you love playing bridge or if somebody close to you loves playing bridge, you're going to want to check out AvonmoreInc.com. They have everything that you need from coasters to cards, smart color cards, also great for kids, napkins, tallies, anything you need for your party. Go to AvonmoreInc.com, let them know that Good is in the Details sent you, and I will link them in the show notes. Good is in the details is partnered with newsly.me. It's that all-in-one app for iOS and Android. Get your news read to you in a natural human voice. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can get articles and podcasts from all over the web. What are you interested in? Philosophy, transportation, music? Check out newsly.me and use offer code thedetails to get one month free premium subscription. Okay, back to the show. What are your thoughts on the shift in work ethic and expectations for Gen Z millennials compared to, you know, Gen X and, and boomers? Like it like we feel that there seems to be everyone's thinking that the that oh, the the younger generation think things differently or their expectations of their career. I mean, and this is this is kind of tied to another thing that I'm I'm kind of really focused on. It all comes down to how early you want to have that discussion about careers and what you expect out of life. But like, I want to kind of tie that with the, what your thoughts are on the gig economy. I talk to a longer a lot of younger kids, and they're like, "Oh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do Uber, or I'm just gonna do Lyft, or I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do ride sharing, or I'm gonna do grocery delivery, and that'll be my side hustle until I, I find my absolute 100 percent dream job." And I actually think that's a generational shift in trying to build a career as well. I it's kind of a two part question: like, what is the generational divide, and and how does the whole gig economy affect things there? I think different generations have different experiences and that affects how they approach the workplace. I think for millennials and Gen Z, there are two big changes I've seen compared to my generation. Uh, I'm a boomer. And like many boomers, when I got out of college, uh, housing was generally cheap, 
most of us didn't have student loans. There's a reason housing was more affordable in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It was because we built like crazy in the suburbs in the United States from the 1940s through the 1970s. And politically, it was um, it was a lot easier to do that because you were building in farmlands and rural areas. All that land got built out. Two things happened. One was it provided affordable homes that people could move to in the suburbs. It also depressed real estate prices in the center, central cities. So suddenly places like when I moved to Portland, Oregon in 1991, it was a bargain. Uh, why was that? Well, because for 35 years before that, we'd been building out in the Portland suburbs and nobody wanted to live in the city. But as commute times lengthened, housing got more desirable and eventually more expensive in central cities. And zoning laws keep it, make it difficult to build, not only here, but in most American cities that have this kind of demand. I say all that because now it, it's really hard to buy a house. And you're if you're in Z generation, Z or a millennial, a lot of your income is going to rent and not to savings. The other thing are student loans. And and I think most people are leaving universities or colleges with big debt that when higher education was more affordable in the 60s and 70s, boomers didn't have to pay attention to. So I think those two trends do make boomers, or I'm sorry, millennial and, and Generation Z more worried about their careers and uh, more focused on finding a really good, well-paying job right after graduation. And they're looking for, however they're defining perfect, probably a large salary or is, is part of that. And with boomers, I think there was more opportunity for experimentation in your 20s. And I, I don't see that with, these, with, the, with those two generations because of financial pressures. And I, I think that puts a lot more pressure on their job search. In terms of Millennial and, and Gen Z's expectations for the workplace, I think they are more interested in hybrid work. They recognize that the old idea of going to work for one employer for decades hasn't really been a reality for a long time. And I think that does shape their careers as well. So I'm not... Am I answering your question, Rudy? <laughs> yeah, no, you you are. You actually you, you nailed it. I'm also obsessed with the with the impact of housing and transportation. Yeah. Are right. Like I'm, I'm a transportation finance lawyer. I advocate for more money being spent on on transit and and alternatives to vehicles. So I study this stuff and write about it on Forbes.com incessantly. What I didn't connect was Gen Z and millennials being saddled with debt, which I know I know they are, and then couple that with skyrocketing home prices. Now I'm kind of wondering if everyone has a side hustle, maybe it's because they have to. Yeah. Maybe because they're starting off their career on the lower rung of the ladder. And so they want to write online. They want to have a side hustle. They want to deliver food. It's because they have to. My thinking of the tying of the two together is we force that upon them. You need to have... Not only do you have multiple jobs in a household these days in order to pay the bills, you yourself have to bring multiple streams of income in because of the debt and because of the housing costs, which is sad. But I mean, that might be the case. What are your thoughts on that, Gwen or, or, or Mac? I've been thinking about this in terms of like generations. And I was thinking that Gen X, we might be the last generation to appreciate and understand silence. And I was thinking about it in terms of the work culture. I had asked my students before the internet, how do you think that you would meet with a professor to ask a question? I said, syllabus was on a piece of paper. There were office hours. 
and you went and saw the professor at that time. What has happened because of the pressures that they have, and all of us now with the side hustle, is that we are perpetually on call because of notifications, because of email, because of text. So you can be in line at the grocery store and get something about work. Boomers and Generation X, we can turn it off. We understand that. But the later generations, they don't. And so they are perpetually like to work is to always be on call. And I think that that's an extraordinary shift. And so I don't blame them for being a little bit tired or wanting to be independent because now a lot of their work time is after hours. So they're used to being more independent and don't feel like, I don't know, maybe that's why like the gig economy appeals to them so much. But what are what are your thoughts? I think that I'm seeing millennials who are, are and Gen Z workers who are getting good at setting boundaries and managing their their boss's expectations. And I think this is happening in part because of the pandemic. The other reason I think it's happening, so I, I do see, I've got employees myself who say, I'm not responding to emails after five and uh, or on the weekends. And I, and I think smart employers want to have people like that working for them because if you create a good work environment, people are going to stick with you longer. And you always want to retain good people, but especially in this economy. The other big change that we haven't talked about, in addition to housing costs and student loan debt, that is going to have a profound effect on the different generations, is that we're in a job seekers market right now. It really hasn't been this way since the 1970s. You could argue there was a year or two in, in the 1990s when job seekers were in the driver's seat. But because of that, and because the pandemic showed us that hybrid work can work, we're seeing a major restructuring of the workplace that allows people to work at home. And I think then the people who are, I think because people don't want to work all the time, and I, I think in the past, you're right, Gwendolyn, people have felt they had to be on call and be responsive. But I think the pandemic has taught people too, that in addition to be able to work at home, one or two or three days a week, for that to be successful, they've got to set boundaries. And I think you'll see more of that. And I and that I think smart employers, if they want to hold on to their best people, are going to provide those hybrid work environments and they're going to accept and respect those boundaries. Mac, as an employer then, put your employer hat on, not not the find your dream job um, hat right now. An employee wants to tell you that um, they want to work hybrid or they don't want you to email them after five and they want you to respect the boundary. What's the best way for an employee to express that to their employer? Like a couple of tips of, to have that difficult conversation. If your employer isn't automatically offering working from home or, or having some, you know, you time, like what's the best way for an employee to have that discussion with their boss? Focus on results, on the outcomes that you can produce for the employer while you're working in a hybrid environment. I think the one of the big facts that has been unveiled by the pandemic is that many managers, perhaps the majority, have been managing processes. Uh, they haven't been paying attention to outcomes, especially large organizations. If you were a middle manager, you got rewarded for paying attention to when people arrived at work, when they left, how long they were at lunch, are they using uh, sick leave on Mondays and Fridays, and they weren't being these managers rewarded for focusing on the results that were going to help the organization's bottom line or its mission or or the combination of the two. So I think 
managers struggled uh, during the pandemic, those who had been trained in focusing on processes, not products, because they they couldn't see people. It's been a transition. I think the most successful organizations have made that transition or, or in the middle of that journey and are coming out on the other side. But for employees who want to work hybrid and not go in five days a week, I, I think you need to focus on the outcomes your manager that matter to your manager. And if there isn't clarity about that, Rudy, if you can't rattle off the five things that you're supposed to be doing for that manager that are going to help that company's bottom line or that nonprofit's mission, that's another conversation and you should have it. It's vital for the health of that organization. That's what I would focus on. How are you going to make your manager look good and how are you going to do that from home? And that is ultimately about producing the results that he or she can take to her boss. That's great advice. And, and since you brought up the pandemic and the, the shifts in home, I mean, I don't know where, which direction the economy is going. There are some layoffs. There are going to be some forced, let's call it, focus on do I want to stay in this career or do I want to shift careers? When somebody is at a crossroads, whether they know it or not, how do you advise people about career shifts, right? Obviously, I think it's, as you've said, the expectation that you're going to stay in the same job or stay in the same career for your entire life is just not realistic these days. But when somebody is truly struggling, hey, should I stop this? Or hey, should I go try something new? Oh, I'm worried about the skills. What advice do you give to them? Well, first, I want to acknowledge when we're recording this in April of 2023, there have been large number of layoffs at big tech employers, but we're not in a recession. We're actually experiencing record low unemployment. The national unemployment rate is at its lowest since 1969, 54 years. So it won't go on forever. We will be in a recession one day. So you should always be prepared for it. But again, it's still very much a job seekers market. And I would encourage people to take advantage of that by in if they do change jobs and you know in salary negotiations and recognizing there's going to be less competition for the positions they want to your question about changing careers uh, especially during a recession i think it goes again I, I go back to goals if you want to switch careers either a different job or move into a different industry i think you need to know why you want to do that you need to know what you offer you also need to learn from people who've made the switch. So I, one of the smartest things you can do in that situation, Rudy, is find somebody who's done what you want to do. So if you want to move from being the marketing director at a supply chain company to working for a housing nonprofit, there's somebody who's done that. Once you talk to that person, you can ask them what were the challenges they faced? How did they overcome those barriers? Share your own objections. We all carry these around in our heads. I'll never be able to make this switch because I don't know anybody in the new town I want to move to. Or I don't know anybody in the industry where I want to work. Turn those objections into questions. What advice would you have for somebody who's moving to town and hasn't worked in this market before? What concerns might employers have about a candidate like that? How do you how have you seen people successfully address those concerns? Again, if you know where you want to go, why you want to make that change, and you talk to people who've made that leap, your path will get a lot smoother and a lot shorter. I would highly recommend anybody that is at that crossroads, Mac, to listen to your very recent episode on the negative impact of self-criticism uh, and how that can affect your job search. That episode really spoke to me. It definitely, yes, it talked about it in the context of looking for a job or looking for a career, but there were so many great things that 
about the negative impacts of negative self-talk and how that can go into a spiral. That's going to be my like go-to episode that I'm going to be recommending of your Thank podcast. You. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an absolutely critical one for anybody considering career change. What's stopping you is you. It's not all that other type of stuff. Like if it's important for you to make that change, if you figure out your why, then you'll figure it out. The only person stopping you is you. That, that's my opinion. I think that's right. And I love this advice about reading or learning about whoever is the best in your field. I've I've told my students this, whatever it is that you want to do, find out who's the best at it and read what they wrote or learn from them. And the same way athletes will study other athletes and then you pick up the habits of those stellar athletes. You might not be of the same caliber, but it will inspire you and see how somebody got to where they were. And I also just in general, I think at least once a year, pick up a biography or a memoir of somebody who's extraordinary. And they don't even necessarily have to be in your field, but the trajectory of a lot of extraordinary people's lives from where they started and the resilience and the historical context and everything, it's always amazing. And it just lights a fire under you to want to go and <laughs> achieve anything. So I think reading something inspirational is important because work is ultimately, it is a way in which you are expressing the way you exist in the world. So it's the way that you show up or what you're contributing to somebody else. And so it's so important to have an idea of self and a respect of self and how you want to show up, how you want to define yourself. I'm just wondering, Mac, do you have a favorite biography? I'm like wondering, can you think of one or a memoir when you say like, you know, if in this field, this person wrote something that was stellar, any recommendations? One of my favorite quotes is from Seth Godin, who's a, a well-known marketer. He says, don't wait to be picked. His point is that so many of us, we're not sure what to do, particularly when you're looking for work, you think, oh, the way I'll do this is I'll sit down and I'll look at job boards like the one Mac runs and you know, jobs that interest me, I'll apply for and I'll wait to hear back. But I find, Gwendolyn, if you get clear about the job you want and you come up with a list of target employers, maybe 20, 25 organizations, then you can reach out just as you've suggested to people who are doing the work you want to do. You can learn from them, uh, not only how they got there and what that work is like and what those positions pay, but you also have begin to uncover positions that never get advertised on job boards like the one I run. Whether a position is advertised or not, one of the most important principles to remember about hiring is employers want to reduce risk. They don't want a hiring to go bad. And one of the ways they do it is they rely on referrals. Referrals are hugely important. And I would challenge anybody listening to think about the best jobs they've had. And I'll bet you one or more of them have come about through a referral. That's because the person making the referral knows who you are and what you want. And by suggesting you, they've helped reduce risk for that hiring manager. So don't wait to be picked. Something about don't be a pick me and it or, or waiting to be to be chosen. And it reminded me of something that I read in Lean In was that women have a tendency to... Rudy, we were talking about one time, have the tiara effect, meaning if they just do great work, then it'll be noticed and that that's sufficient. Whereas men will, you know, lean in and they're better at negotiating when it comes to salary increases or even just the entry point. I realize that's a generalization. I don't want anyone to get mad at me for, for noting that. I have noticed that in my own behavior. What do you see with women 
when they're talking about salaries and what should they know about going into the job market? Is that difference still a thing or or no? It, the way that women work with salaries. It's very much an issue. There's research that shows that women don't negotiate salaries. They accept the first offer. And employers will tell you, I talk to employers all the time, when they put out that first number, they expect someone to make a counteroffer. And they're, they're waiting for it. Women often don't do that. The other issue, and there's research about this as well, is a man and a woman will look at the same job posting. The man will apply if he's got 60 50% of the qualifications, a woman will think that she needs to have 90%. And if you talk to recruiters, and I do all the time, they will tell you they're looking for applicants to have about 60%. So many women are taking themselves out of the competition because they think their ap application needs to be perfect. Third thing I want to talk, you mentioned the tiara effect and thinking that good work alone will speak for itself. That's not how the world works. If you are getting things done, you need to tell your bosses about it. You need to understand what matters to them. What are the results they want? This gets back to managing for results, not processes. And it is your job, whatever your gender, to make sure your supervisors are clear about their expectations and that you're meeting. And, ex and if you're meeting and exceeding those expectations, it's your job to communicate that. Your good work alone won't speak for itself. How do you communicate that? Like, what what are the tools? Because I really am in that situation. I think it's a, just a general sociological issue of women are trained to, you know, <laughs> we need to to be not to, not to be loud, not to be aggressive, not to mm -hmm. be not to be bitchy. That there is this real fear and social consequence if you are perceived to be in that way, and so women tend to pull back on that and not to show off that it still has these ripple effects from this cultural way you're supposed to behave. I mean, my mom stuck me in cotillion. So there's these <laughs> cultural ways that you're supposed to behave. And that is not working when it comes to negotiating your way in the workplace. So I hear this, women need to negotiate, not accept the first offer, let people know, not have the tiara effect. So what is the language that somebody would use in order to express that? Well, if you if there's an offer on the table for salary, two answers come to mind. One is if you haven't gotten training in, in salary negotiation, invest in it because whatever the number is, that starting salary, if you are able to move it up five, ten thousand dollars $10,000, it has a huge effect on your lifetime earnings. Before you start your next job search, make sure that you spend time learning basics of salary negotiation if you haven't done that formally in the past. There are online courses, you can work with coaches, you can find articles. But the quick version of it, Gwendolyn, is you need to research the market. You need to know what the market is paying. You can look at places like Glassdoor, uh, salary.com. When you're doing your research before applying for jobs, you should know what a position pays so that when you get an offer, you can say, that's terrific. My research shows that this position typically pays this amount, and I was thinking about this. There's going to be some back and forth, but just by having that conversation, you're going to increase your, your salary by some thousands of dollars. And if you change jobs 10 or 12 times in the course of 40 years, and you have that conversation 10 or 12 times, your lifetime earnings are going to go way up. Second, about communicating your results in the workplace, 
I think it, it has to become a, a, a habit in your work. Most of us have regular check-ins with our supervisors. We have an opportunity there to talk about the results we're producing. When we're updating our application materials, our resumes, or keeping our LinkedIn up to date, we need to talk not about our roles and responsibilities, but about the results. When we're getting ready for annual reviews, we should not be scrambling a couple, you know, the day before to pull together a list of accomplishments. We should have some kind of, sometimes it's called a brag file. When you get good notes about accomplishments or, but you document what you've done and you should be communicating that regularly, not only at your annual review, but in your regular check-ins. And you should have that material at hand so you can talk about those results because every annual review is a chance for a raise. And typically companies will pay three, 5%. You want to get 5%, not three. And documenting what you've accomplished is an important step to getting to that higher figure. A brag file. I love it. Because even Rudy and I have had that conversation about promoting the podcast. And I'm, I think that I've got that tiara effect. I'm like, it's just a fabulous show. People will discover it. And Rudy's like, no, no, no. Got to tell everybody about it. Got to yeah. it and Rudy yeah. is like, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. He's fantastic at being the voice of promoting. But I didn't even realize that I was actually situated in that gender idea of what it meant to be in, you know, in the workforce. Got to be a hustler. So it was great to, yeah, it was actually great to read Lean In because I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even recognize some of this stuff in myself. I thought I was just, you know, being and doing me. But um, now we need to, I know to have a brag file and be like, hey, you know what? Today was fabulous. And this is what I, these are the results I brought. That's what I'm going to start. You know what? That's how I'm going to start my text to you, Rudy. (laughs) Good. These are the results. Look at these no, numbers. See, Look at these downloads. You don't need to, you don't need to listen sponsors. to Rudy. Listen to Matt, okay? And, Matt, and, awesome. and every listener needs to, everyone, every listener needs to listen to Mac. They need to listen to find your dream job. They really need to take ownership of their career and their own happiness and can't expect things to happen for them. They, people need to take charge. Mac, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. Really love what you do. Really love that you have that excellent podcast out there. You're changing lives. Thank you. It is great. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Balski and Rudy Sallow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or you can check us out on Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod. Take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode and tag us. You can also check us out on Facebook. Or if you have any questions or if you'd like to partner up and sponsor an episode, you can get in touch. Good is in the Details Pod at gmail.com. And you can join our Patreon for extra content and our book club. That is patreon.com slash good is in the details. And I will put that in the show notes. Remember to check out avonmoreinc.com and newsly.me for your one month free premium subscription. Okay, until next time. Bye.